Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're at the Eisenhower Farm at Gettysburg talking with Daniel Vermilia about Dwight D. Eisenhower and Camp Colt. Before we get started, though, can you tell us a little bit about how the U.S. War Department administered Gettysburg Battlefield prior to World War One? Sure. Thanks for uh, coming out and being here at the Eisenhower Farm today. It's nice to join you here this morning in Gettysburg. Uh, I think a lot of folks who visit Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, are surprised to learn of the interesting history of Camp Colt itself. The idea that you have this Civil War battlefield and 50-plus years after the battle was fought, it was used for an entirely different purpose of training soldiers in World War One, And that really wasn't out of the ordinary for that time in American history. When uh, the War Department in the early years of Gettysburg's history was not run by the National Park Service, but by the War Department uh, starting in the 1890s. And it was established to be a memorial place to commemorate the battle, commemorate those who fought here, but it also had some utility to it as well, in the sense that the War Department uh, oversaw it with a board of commissioners, but they also used it for training soldiers. They would have military groups come to study the terrain on the battlefield. And actually in 1913, uh, on the 50th anniversary of Gettysburg, there was a camp of instruction set up out on the battlefield for undergraduate college students. And uh, over 150 of them spent a couple weeks here in that summer, 1913, studying the landscape. And it was in keeping with how some of the other early War Department battlefields were used, such as Antietam and Chickamauga, as landscapes for the military to learn lessons from the past to inform battles of the present. So when was Camp Colt set up, and what was its purpose? Well, Camp Colt comes about in 1918, but really it is taking the place of a camp that existed here out on the Gettysburg battlefield the year before in 1917. When the United States entered into the First World War in April of 1917, the American army was quite small. So the immediate pressing need was to train and expand as quickly as possible in order to uh, actually be able to take part in the fighting and, and play a role in the conflict. So very quickly, the War Department is searching for available space to set up training camps. And Gettysburg was selected as a training camp initially for infantry regiments. And there were structures built on the battlefield itself, and there were four regiments, the 58th, 59th, 60th, and 61st United States Infantry Regiments were actually trained here in the summer and fall of 1917. And uh, in November of 1917, 102 years ago right now, uh, they were starting to ship these men out of town so they could head overseas to France and take part. So when Camp Colt was established the following year, in the spring of 1918, the United States government had some structures still left on the Gettysburg battlefield, the old imprint of this infantry training camp. And they established it to be a training grounds for the new tank corps. Essentially, tanks are a brand new weapon in World War I. The United States Army is trying to figure out how to utilize this weapon, how to train soldiers how to utilize it. And uh, Camp Colt was set up for that purpose. Now, where does the name come from? From Samuel Colt, the okay. inventor of the Colt revolver. Okay. Now, this might be uh, a dumb question, but... Where is the camp located in terms of the Gettysburg battlefield itself? I mean, are they putting a camp right on top of 
the battlefield? Not a not a bad question at all. Yeah, it was right in the middle of the battlefield. So it stretched essentially from uh, in the town of Gettysburg today, f- for those who are familiar, from essentially about where Steinwer Avenue and Washington Street intersect in the town near Cemetery Hill, all the way down to near the Spangler Farm and the Peach Orchard along the Emmitsburg Road. So it stretched for a pretty good uh, length of space. And it was right literally in the middle of the battlefield, um, the most the, the easiest way to point out where it was is to say it was right in the middle of where Pickett's Charge occurred during the battle. So at some point they're running tanks over this part of the battlefield. Yeah, there's uh, tanks going over there. And not just that, but the camp itself, all of these structures and buildings, they had a rail line coming out onto the battlefield. Uh, needless to say, it was a much different preservation philosophy in 1918 when the United States was involved in World War I than what we would have today. We would never dream of doing something like that today, as our goal today is to maintain the 1863 landscape. In 1918, the goal was to train soldiers for war. Understood. Now, a young Dwight D. Eisenhower was tapped to be commander of Camp Colt. World War I was a formative experience for many future World War II leaders. For men like Douglas MacArthur and George Patton, the battlefields of World War I were a proving ground. Eisenhower's wartime experience is a little different, though. Can you give us an overview of his service in World War I? Well, in early 1918, Eisenhower was at Camp Meade in Maryland with the 301st Tank Battalion. And many of his West Point classmates from uh, West Point class of 1915, the class the stars fell on, famously, they were going overseas, and Eisenhower hoped and expected he would go overseas as well. But he had already developed a very good reputation as a skilled organizer, and his experience with the 301st Tank Battalion made him an ideal candidate to lead this new tank training school in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And when Eisenhower got his orders to stay here in the United States while others he knew were going overseas, he was not really happy about it. It was a big disappointment to him. This is billed as the Great War. It is the war to end all wars. And here is Eisenhower thinking, I'm a young army officer. This is my opportunity to get into combat. And while all of my friends are going, I'm actually going to be staying here training. And uh, he wasn't really thrilled about that. But I would say, is as often the case in life, sometimes our disappointments can end up leading to our greatest successes. And sometimes uh, what happens to you might not be what you want, but it ends up being the best thing for you. So that's kind of what happened with Eisenhower. As he was later note that it was here at Camp Colt that, uh, quote, I really began to learn about responsibility. So Camp Colt ended up being a pretty important post for him. What challenges did Eisenhower face as he led the new tank school? Well, he's leading a training camp for a brand new weapon. Uh, he's a young army officer. He's under 30. So the challenges are immense in a lot of different ways. But the first challenge actually doesn't even have to do with tanks themselves. Eisenhower arrives here in the spring of 1918, and his first obstacle is a big snowstorm that hits in April. And his response to this was to go into the town of Gettysburg and buy every wood stove that he could find. So his men could quite literally stay warm with this uh, snowstorm striking the area. So he, he went around, bought as many as he could, uh, distributed them to the men so they could use them in their camps and their tents so they could stay warm. But his overall challenge beyond things like that was really finding a way to train these men on how to use a new weapon of war. And his biggest obstacle there was for several months he did not have any tanks to train. So for several months, Eisenhower, instead of actually using tanks, because in 1918 the United States was not producing its own tanks yet, 
His biggest challenge was trying to find ways to keep these men engaged, keep them busy. One of the soldiers noted that in many ways this was something similar to an infantry training camp because they focused on military discipline, marching, physical fitness, things like that. But Eisenhower actually was pretty creative in finding things to make sure that the soldiers were being productive in their training efforts. For example, he set up a telegraph school to teach them on Morse code. He set up a school to teach them on how to do engine repair, something very important when you're using tanks. And he spent a lot of time teaching basic military uh, drill and discipline. So he found other ways to implement their training. By June, they actually did receive a tank, a French Renault tank. And it arrived, and they drove it right through the town of Gettysburg, and there was exhaust coming out of it, and it was kicking up dust, and all the townspeople were very curious about it. So Eisenhower actually parked it near the gate of the camp so that the curious townspeople could come over and see this new wonder of war. But before that, his, his main method of uh, training the soldiers in something similar to tanks was actually mounting guns on trucks and driving them around the battlefield and using big round top, of all places, as target practice. Really? And that continued when he had the tank. Big round top continued as the shooting range for the men to practice their marksmanship and maneuvers, which when we think of big round top today, most everyone thanks of July 2nd, 1863, uh, fighting right next door on Little Round Top, but... In 1918, it was a shooting range for Dwight Eisenhower and the men of Camp Cole. Gotcha. So there were challenges like that um, that he had to overcome. And uh, I think Ike's ability to adapt and improvise really suited him well. And it was something that he was able to develop and fine-tune there. Tell us about the camp itself. I mean, how many soldiers were there? What was its relationship like with the nearby town? Let's take a break. We'll be right back in a moment. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring the story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Well, overall, there were over 12,000 soldiers who came through the camp during its time in 1918. In the month of July, at its height, there were about 6,800 men there. And a lot of these men are starting to be sent overseas by the end of that month. Ike would later write that at Camp Colt, uh, quote, because our enlisted personnel were volunteers showing an exemplary zeal, our troops were a few cuts above average. Most of these men had about eight years or so of schooling, but there were some high school or college graduates there as well. Overall, maybe 20 different tank battalions were there. I'm not going to list every single one of them, but they ranged from the 302nd to the 346th, uh, more or less. And there were also other companies there, salvage and repair companies, other units like these. And a lot of these guys did end up going overseas and serving in combat, including places like the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, uh, the bloodiest battle in American history. So the training that they had here in Gettysburg with Eisenhower was put to the test over on the battlefields of Europe later that year. 
As far as the camp itself, it was quite advanced in some ways. There were uh, mess halls. There were 12 of them, in fact. There was a hospital built right along the Emmitsburg Road. Eisenhower really focused on utilizing this because it wasn't practical to send the men elsewhere to other towns in the area for medical care. They had a camp bakery uh, not too far away from the Virginia Memorial. There were about 90 vehicles in the camp, including nearly 50 motorcycles. So it was quite advanced in that sense. There were parade grounds near the Kadori farm where the men would play baseball. They had boxing at the camp. There was even a large pool near the United States Regulars Monument on Cemetery Ridge. So uh, it was quite advanced. You know, they have their own newspaper that came out every month called Treat em Rough, and it was meant to keep the men's morale up. So uh, they, they did a lot to make it a suitable environment for the soldiers who were there. And uh, as far as the relationship with the town, it was an interesting one. The town liked the fact that there was a camp of soldiers there who were being paid and uh, these men had money to spend, so it did help the town's economy. Uh, but as young men often do in this situation, they're away from home, they're getting paychecks, there can be some carousing. Uh, so there were some issues that Eisenhower had to deal with, some complaints uh, regarding men going into various establishments with alcohol, things like that. So uh, they worked on a setting up a ban on all alcohol being sold within five miles of Camp Colt. So the relationship with the town was a bit odd, though Ike would later write that most residents welcomed the camp and the soldiers, if for no other reason than patriotism. So he, he wrote that in his uh, memoir later on titled At Ease, I think putting a nice positive spin on it. Very diplomatic. Very diplomatic, very classic Eisenhower in that sense. Now in 1918, the influenza pandemic reaches Camp Colt. How does this affect the camp? Well, going back to our earlier question about the challenges that he faced, I would say that perhaps the greatest challenge aside from not having tanks for a while was influenza. And Camp Colt was not immune to the pandemic that was spreading all around the world. It hit here in Gettysburg in mid-September when 124 men arrived from Fort Devens in Massachusetts. And unbeknownst to the men of Camp Colt, some of these soldiers were actually infected with the influenza virus. Within a few days, it was discovered because the illness was spreading. And it was actually the camp surgeon, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Scott, who figured it out that, uh oh, this is influenza. It's spreading amongst the men. And Eisenhower uh, really tried to take a lot of efforts to prevent the spread of it further to save as many lives as he could. Um, as he would later write, the whole camp was on edge. No one knew who was going to be stricken, and death came suddenly. Some of the measures they implemented were quarantines. They made sure that no more than four men were in a tent. And for those who were seriously ill, they were put in a tent by themselves. Some of the sick were actually sent into the town uh, at a local Catholic church and treated there. Probably the most innovative thing uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Scott implemented was an actual spray that he would use for the throats of some of the men. He used it for Eisenhower and his family and for the headquarters staff. And we're not 100% sure what it actually was, but uh, Ike said that the spray made him feel like the top of his head was going to blow off. So it was a very strong, pungent spray. They would give them twice a day, spray it on the back of their throats, uh, some sort of an antiseptic perhaps. And uh, for those who were becoming ill, they would make sure they had it as well. They got that and some sort of a soothing syrup they received afterwards. And... Whether it was due to the spray, whether it was due to the quarantine, uh, Eisenhower was able to limit the effects of the influenza here. While 321 soldiers, as best we know, got sick, 
150 of them ended up dying uh, of the illness while they were here at Camp Cole. And uh, the War Department considered Eisenhower's efforts to be a success because they were able to relatively quickly stop the spread of it. It only lasted a short time in the fall of 1918, so they actually tried to take some of the practices from Camp Colt and implement them elsewhere. In October 1918, after many, many requests to be sent overseas, Eisenhower finally receives orders to take a tank battalion to France. The date of departure is set for November 18, 1918. The November 11th armistice cancels these orders. How does Eisenhower respond to this? Well, I think he responded with frustration. Uh, as I noted earlier, he was frustrated at his initial orders, uh, going to Camp Colt instead of going to Europe, and then right when he thinks he might have a chance to go overseas, the war comes to a close. And uh, he wrote to a good friend of his saying, I suppose we'll spend the rest of our lives explaining why we didn't get into this. Mm. A friend of his who also stayed stateside. Ike also noted, I could see myself years later silent at class reunions while others reminisced of battle. For a man who likes to talk as much as I, that would have been intolerable punishment. It looked to me as if anyone who was denied the opportunity to fight might as well get out of the army at the end of the war. But later on in At Ease, his memoir he would write years later, he noted that while he thought he had missed the boat in the war that would be ending all wars, he really did learn an important lesson. He said, I hadn't fully learned the basic lesson of the military, that the proper place for a soldier is where he is ordered by his superiors. So I think in that sense, Eisenhower's biggest lesson of Camp Colt was putting his personal frustration aside, focusing on the job at hand, focusing on the task he was given, doing it to the best of his ability, and growing in terms of his ability as a leader, his abilities to handle responsibility and look out for those under his command. And if you think about what Eisenhower built his military career on, it was integrity, it was responsibility, it was organization. Those are all things he learned about at Camp Colt. Do you think his time at Camp Colt also helped him understand armor and mechanized warfare? I think it certainly uh, helped him understand some of the changing technology of warfare. Uh, I would say that his biggest lessons were not in the technology itself, but in growing as a leader, uh, simply because he doesn't really have a lot of technology to use at Camp Colt, because he's improvising and having to use trucks with guns mounted on them, things like that. He's not necessarily learning uh a ton about tanks. He knew some from already being assigned with the 301st Tank Battalion, but I would say more valuable were just the lessons he learned as, as a young man put in a position of great responsibility. Okay. Now he's ordered to Fort Benning after the armistice. What happens at Camp Colt after he leaves? After he leaves Camp Colt, uh, the camp essentially comes to a close at the end of 1918. By November of that year, there were only 150 men left, so most of the men had been sent elsewhere by that time. And by the spring of 1919, basically everybody's gone. They started to sell off some of the structures and reduce some of the imprint on the landscape, but really it would take decades for them to fully remove the imprint of Camp Colt. For example, the remnants of the swimming pool were still present all the way up into the 1970s and, and beyond. So it would take years for the landscape to recover. But by 1923, most all the structures had been disassembled or sold off. Uh, really, after Ike leaves, the camp itself comes to a close. And really today, the, the lasting impact of the camp that can still be seen on the landscape, if you're driving along the Emmitsburg Road going south out of the town of Gettysburg, you might notice right along the left-hand side heading south, there's a pine tree, a white pine, and it has a little marker next to it. 
That was planted in 1954 by Camp Cult Veterans. And that was planted almost as a living memorial to what had taken place there, a living remembrance of the camp and their time there together. And it was planted, of course, when Eisenhower was president of the United States. And when they planted it, they put one pound of soil from each of the 48 states and then the two territories as well into it, using to plant the tree itself. And they even chose the white pine tree because of Ike's affinity for that type. So while the camp was gone, and for several decades there was nothing to really mark it, having been there other than the physical imprint on the landscape, this tree was planted in 1954 as a nice living memorial to Eisenhower and the men who, who served there. Clearly Eisenhower and his wife liked the Gettysburg area. Decades later, after serving here at Camp Colt, and then after his second term as president, they buy a farm here. Tell us about his retirement here. Well, Gettysburg was a very special part of the Eisenhowers' lives together. Ike first came to the town in 1915 with his West Point class. He, of course, spent a lot of time here in 1918. And Gettysburg had this calling on him that he really felt comfortable here. He and Mamie enjoyed the area. So by the late 1940s, Ike has left the United States Army. He's taken a position at the head of Columbia University. They're looking for a retirement home. And in 1950, they buy this farm here in Gettysburg, right next to the battlefield. They bought 189 acres of farmland for the price of $44,000. And they bought it because of its close proximity to the battlefield, because of its farmland here, but also because they really liked the area. And this was the only home they ever owned. For all their years together, Ike and Mamie were always on the move. This was the only place they, as a married couple, ever actually owned and could really call theirs. And they actually owned it prior to him becoming president. Correct. They bought okay. it a couple years before he was president. And when they bought it in 1950, they're envisioning retirement. They're not envisioning the presidency. Right. But, of course, a couple years later, that's exactly what happens. Ike relents to this pressure for him to run. He serves two terms in office. And during those two terms, that's really when they started to utilize this farm. In fact, he spent over one year of his presidency here, when you add up all the different days and weekends and weeks all together. So it became an important retreat for the Eisenhowers. It also became a diplomatic tool. He brought a lot of world leaders here. He brought Winston Churchill here to the farm in 1959 in the month of May. A couple months after that, he brought Nikita Khrushchev here to the farm in September uh, when Khrushchev was visiting the United States. So he used it quite a bit as a diplomatic tool during his presidency. And then after he left office, this did become his retirement home, his primary residence. And the Eisenhower National Historic Site today preserves and protects this farm in the Eisenhower home. And we try to keep this as best as we can, as close to what the Eisenhowers had. I think it's really, really remarkable that when you come here, you are taking a step into the Eisenhower's world. When you are seeing the Eisenhower house, you are seeing all of their actual stuff. 98% of the items we have in the house are original to the Eisenhowers. So as far as historic houses go, we are able to say that we're right up there with the, with the best in terms of being able to offer the actual items that these historic figures had in their home. And uh, it's really a remarkable, you get a remarkable sense of who Ike and Mamie were as people by coming here because you're seeing the farm as they saw it, their house as they lived in it. And uh, we are right here in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right next to the Gettysburg battlefield. There are shuttles 
that you can take from the Gettysburg Visitor Center to come on over and see us. We don't have parking here because Ike and Mamie didn't have parking, so we have uh, shuttle access to the site. But the buses come on over, and you can explore the grounds of the Eisenhower Farm. You can see Ike and Mamie's house, get a chance to uh, see some of the amazing things given to them by world leaders that we have on display. See the sun porch where Ike loved to sit and read and, and paint, and he and Mamie would watch the evening news and watch their their favorite TV shows together. And then you can walk the grounds of the farm and see where Eisenhower had a cattle herd. He was a cattle farmer here in retirement. So he was really a remarkable man. And his time here at Camp Colt in 1918 set this place up to be his eventual presidential retreat home and then his retirement home. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.